And so I started blogging about psychic stuff. And man, did the skeptics come out of the woodwork to come tell me what they thought. They were super opinionated. And they, uh, they challenged me to take Randy's million dollar challenge for psychics. And they told me it was all nonsense and whatnot. So I went and did some research, checked up on this stuff. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi everyone, today I have a guest I'm really excited about. His name is Craig Weiler. And a bit about Craig Weiler. He is a California Bay Area-based author and he is the science editor for Paranormal Daily News. He covers controversies in parapsychology, such as a Wikipedia controversy, the TED controversy of 2013, and reported on 10 years of undiscovered research by Russell Gerber, Mirror Worlds Research. He is currently working on the first issue of Parawise, a new magazine devoted to parapsychology and other edge sciences. He's an associate member of the Parapsychological Association, author of Psy Wars, TED, Wikipedia, and the Battle for the Internet. He pays the bills with his small construction business on the peninsula of, in Northern California, where he lives with his wife and just enough cats. And I will post some links in the show notes where he can be found, but he, Craig can be found on Paranormal Daily News, his Twitter account at Craig Weiler. Mastodon at Craig at Craig underscore Weiler, Cora Parapsychology Space. He ruminates on various other topics on his Cora, which I'll include the link in the show notes. And just, I know a lot of you write in, why does Wikipedia, why do so many scientists and intelligent seeming skeptics say this is all not true? if there is so much evidence. And as anyone who listens knows, that's a question that I have. And yeah, Wikipedia is one of the big sources that I've come to think just debunks all of what I've come to conclude is very valid evidence. And that is Craig Weiler's expertise. So I'm very happy to have him on. So thank you for coming on, Craig. Liz, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. So let's get started, because first of all, your book, that 
is something that made a difference to me. It's one of the books I refer to people when they reach out to me, as I know some of you guys have, very concerned about Wikipedia's take. Now, if you Google any researchers, Dr. Julie Beichel, you know, very valid parapsychological research, you will get a very different take on Wikipedia than what the data seems to show or what you would read in other places that are, I would say, more open or curious. So what, what Wikipedia, what's going on with that? Uh, that's an interesting story. Uh, that's, uh, you know, obviously anybody who gets into parapsychology uh, or looking into any of the science uh, around this goes straight to Wikipedia, right? You know, you get onto Google and it is like the first thing you see. And then you read these articles and it's, they're completely negative. According to them, you know, nothing's happened. It's all pseudoscience, yada, yada, yada. I, ran, I certainly ran into that when I first started looking into it and uh, eventually just abandoned Wikipedia completely because it didn't match up at all with the evidence. So the first thing you need to know about me is uh, I'm a general building contractor. And so this comes, with, this comes with a certain mindset. You have to deal with constantly with enough. Do you, have an, do you have enough evidence to make a decision? Do you have enough for this? Is, is the quality enough? So these, this is different from everything has to be perfect because that's un, unobtainable in my profession. So you go, I go in with that mindset that, that, you know, what is enough? And I look at Wikipedia and they have no concept of that. So who, who are these people? And so when I started looking into that, I found that they had ties to skeptical organizations, and that's not surprising. So the thing you need to know about Wikipedia is that they're an incredibly obtuse, rule-based organization. There are rules for everything. And the other part of it is that it is completely user-organized and user-administrated. So they don't have... Wikipedia itself isn't the adult in the room. There is no adult in the room with Wikipedia. They're making their own society, basically small society there. And what happens is that the most aggressive and authoritarian people eventually will take control of any organization like that. If you are in any sort of user-dominated space, the most conservative people will eventually take it over if they are allowed to run it. It just, things just naturally move in that direction. And the reason is, is because these people with authoritarian tendencies tend towards situations where they can be in control. And this is certainly the case with Wikipedia. And, and Wikipedia is incredibly attractive to them because it's influential. So they get to dominate the conversation, shut out the people they don't like. Uh, and these are all things that appeal to authoritarians. So you see this in, in other areas, you know, any place where you have a lot of power and, and people can, can gain control, authoritarians will generally overtake those areas. And the, the ones that stay out of that, that manage to stop it, either have somebody moderating that's paid to do it, or I've also seen computer moderation also work because computer moderation doesn't have these biases. And when you set up a situation where people can't shut somebody else down, then things are a little bit more even. But in Wikipedia, they absolutely can. They can ban people they don't like. Once you gain the levers of control in Wikipedia, which these authoritarian types have done, then you can do that. 
and, and they just they shut out opinions they don't like and then off they go. And authoritarian types are generally materialistic. So first of all, do you feel they do this in other areas besides parapsychology? And I guess tied into that, why are they picking on parapsychology and the research behind it? So authoritarians in general pick on anything psychic to start with. This might be priests and preachers who demonize the paranormal. So they would say that it's real, but that it's evil. And then you have the basically fundamental materialist types. You know, they have a fundamentalist view of science. Uh, it's actually called scientism. And those people who have these authoritarian tendencies push their point of view. You said Wikipedia is tied into skeptical organizations. Now, the way I was raised, I always thought of skeptics as the intelligent people. They're the ones that evaluated the evidence, didn't come in with an opinion either way, and were able to realistically assess it and take our wishful thinking out, take our pre-biases out. And that doesn't seem to be the case, but that's what I thought. So what are your takes on the skeptics who supposedly, and if you ask them, they pride themselves on accurately analyzing data. Why do you think they dismiss all of this evidence? Do you think it speaks poorly of the evidence? How can people feel safe that all the evidence for an afterlife and psi abilities is real if skeptics are not considering it strong enough? That's an excellent question. And one of the things that I did in my research was I talked to a lot of skeptics online, a lot of them, hundreds, so that I could understand where they were coming from. And some patterns emerged in skepticism. One is, is that they talk a good game, but they don't know very much. So these people have uh, formed an opinion and part of their belief system is that they are the rational ones. This is what they have to believe. You have to realize that this is like a religion to them. When you hear rationality, that's their dog whistle. They are actually true believers that are championing the cause of this so-called rationality. And once you push them, it doesn't take much to realize that, you know, for example, once I started learning more about parapsychology, it was super obvious that these people knew nothing. I could tell in like literally two, two written sentences that they knew nothing about it. They couldn't, they couldn't tell me who the leading scientists were on either side. They couldn't even tell me who the skeptic scientists were. Most of them don't know that. They don't know the skeptical arguments. They don't know what the research is. And when they do know some research, they're like instantly off to Google to find the first thing that confirms their beliefs. And of course, anything controversial, you're going to have arguments for and then arguments against, right? This is what controversy is. People disagree. And what the skeptics will do is run straight to the things they agree with and simply ignore everything that they don't agree with. And this happened over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, it was rampant. I would say that, you know, when I've talked to these people, maybe one in 20 or 30 was actually open-minded. And this was what led me to the conclusion that really I was dealing with stubborn authoritarian type personalities, that these people weren't grasping any of this because they couldn't. 
It just wasn't in their personality to handle it. Yet they're dedicating their lives to saying they've done the full research. And one thing I've noticed is when I've spoken to skeptics, for example, they knock psychic mediums and say they're all frauds. And I will ask what they think. And I'm actually genuinely wanting to know because I'm still a little have those scared, griefy days where I'm like, oh, none of this is true. And I'm kind of nervously waiting for them to say something that will make me realize I've been deluding myself. And every time I ask what they think of the research of Dr. Julie Beischel, what they think of the research on psychic mediums that are getting positive results in favor of survival of consciousness that's being done at Division of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia, they don't know any of that. They know none of it. They don't even know it's existed. And I know one, I read an article where one attended an event at the Rhine and they had a spoon bending and they skeptic was writing how absurd the spoon bending was. And they said, well, of course we didn't try to do it, but it's obviously fake. And to me, that's kind of that line from what I've noticed. And I think you might agree that seems to sum up everything with the skeptics. You know, of course I didn't read the book. I know it's bullshit, which they actually did say about one of Jim Tucker's books on a whole forum talking about, how fake he was, how horrible the book was, and all of them started saying, well, of course I didn't read it. I wouldn't use my time that way. Then you can't really comment. Yeah, that's exactly right. They think it's all bullshit, and so they don't study any of it. But boy, do they have a strong opinion on it. So one of the, one of the things that you'll run into a lot with skeptics is their inability to handle ambiguity. They, they do not do ambiguity well at all. So when you have a situation that's maybe it is, maybe it isn't, they don't know how to handle that. They have to have things already decided and they, they need somebody else to tell them they don't make up their own minds. That's part of that mindset. They can't, they need an authority figure to tell them what to think and they will go along with that as long as it's an authority and they don't respect anybody who doesn't agree with them as an authority. Do you know anyone who considers themselves skeptics? Because honestly, not the definition you described of skeptics. I consider myself a skeptic in the form of don't believe what I'm told, check, figure out what's going on. I've come to conclude that there is a preponderance of evidence in favor of an afterlife. I can't prove it, but I would say I went from thinking 0% to 90% and basically 100% that convinced that the laws of the universe are different than we think. Now, do you know of any skeptics or, you know, not the ardent skeptics that you were talking about, but anyone else who considered themselves skeptical, dove in and ended up convinced there is now an afterlife or something going on? They're out there. There's a few of them. That definitely happens. There are actually open-minded people out there who describe themselves as skeptics. So I, I should say that the people that I'm describing here are the ones that align with and self-describe themselves as skeptics. In other words, they join the organizations, they get on skeptic forums, they listen to skeptic podcasts and things like this. If you're just having an ordinary person off the street saying, oh, I'm skeptical, they're way more open-minded than these people. I, you know, it's, it, it's like if I just, if I have a random group of 20 people and I say, oh, you know, I'm into parapsychology and they say, well, I'm skeptical. I, and I start talking to them, they go, Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I'm interested, I'll check it out. Okay. Thanks. And that's pretty much it. That's how normal people deal with it. 
And, you know, when you get online, though, you seem to find all these true believers uh, who are absolutely adamant that it cannot possibly exist. Of course, never mind that, what, half the entire world has had psychic experiences at some point. So what, like three and a half, four billion people? And somehow these single rational individuals have seen the light and they are somehow intellectually superior than to half of the entire world? Nah, I don't think so. I have to agree where I have not met or read or encountered one where they've really delved in to the research. They just will go to the most absurd psychic medium that's kind of known for being fake or they'll stop into a storefront psychic and then say, see, see what bullshit is. I'm like, yeah, I could have told you that one was bullshit too. You know, there are fake psychic mediums. You know, it goes to the white crow. That doesn't mean that all are. Or spoon bending. I've tried multiple times to bend a spoon. I was able to do it one time. And then I witnessed people I trust doing it. So it's, you know, it, it one thing they seem to be a little bit either or. And I guess that's what you said about ambiguity. It has to be 100% or it's not true. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really know anything else that applies to. So... Now I'd like to get to Ted. Ted is something I used to put on a pedestal the way I did Wikipedia. And Ted, to me, was the pinnacle of intelligent, open-minded curiosity. Well, obviously, I wrote a book on it so I could dive into way more detail than I, can actually, I would actually do on a radio show. So the, te- the story of Ted, this was in 2013. And what happened was is that a parapsychologist, his name is Rupert Sheldrake, uh, he did a lot of studies on animals and telepathy. He had a TED Talk. It was actually a TEDx, one of their satellite organizations that does talks uh, at Whitechapel in England. And he did, his his talk was on science delusions. He, it, he was simply pointing out that science went by some very basic assumptions that, that depended on materialism. And so his talk was just saying, hey, we have these questions here or we have these assumptions in science that say that materialism is a fundamental and we need to question these, and he listed 10 of them. They decided that his talk was pseudoscience and then they banned it, but they also opened it up for discussion. And what happened was, is that this was all online, which was relatively in 2013. This was kind of unusual, but all the intellectual luminaries jumped in on that conversation so you had these huge, huge comment threads that were running to like a thousand comments with, with some of the greatest intellectual luminaries joining in. And all these people got into this discussion also with regular people to talk about what was going on with Ted. And so Ted eventually had some people, uh, their secret counsel. Uh, I don't know why they were secret. They, they seemed to be afraid of something. That was never made clear, and their reasons for it seemed kind of, well, bullshitty. But the thing with this council is they they listed some reasons for his talk being banned. Sheldrake, who had been traveling in India and had no idea that any of this was going on, was suddenly made aware of this huge controversy at TED. He read the arguments against him, and he published a rebuttal. And the rebuttal basically just made a hash of all those arguments. I mean, completely disproved all of them. And then from there, Ted looked at this and he says, and they said, well, okay, we withdraw these arguments, but we're still going to keep your talk down. So they 
they were like operating with nothing. Basically, it's like, well, we just say it's pseudoscience. And even though you can disprove all of our arguments, we're still going to call it pseudoscience. Uh, and that was basically the way it ended. Somebody came in, I think, a year later to hand Ted a petition, which they accepted. You had to realize the TED organization, Chris Anderson is an atheist, a new atheist, and he brought in a whole bunch of new atheist people who were, who were then relying on new atheist scientists and new atheist Reddit threads. And so they were in this little bubble. Can I interrupt for one question? Yeah, 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 absolutely. What is a new atheist versus just a regular atheist? So the new atheist could better be described as more of a militant, anti-religion types. There, uh, there, there's actually a study from, from the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, which deals with, the, with it breaks down atheism into the separate groups. And one of them is the anti-theists. So new atheists are anti-theists that, that promote the belief system that uh, religion is incredibly damaging to the human race. And if we could if we could get out religion, then we would have no more war and all that sort of sorts of stuff. Like, we'll all be in our happy place if we can just get rid of religion. That's their belief system. Richard Dawkins is a, is their is their Donald Trump, I guess. Ah, uh, okay, got it. Because it's funny because I consider myself an atheist. I that like religion in many ways. I'm culturally Jewish. Maybe I'd say I'm more of an evidentialist, but I. I definitely don't think religion hurts the world. I think it's an authoritarian interpretation of it, which you can do, as we're saying, with really anything in the world. And I guess I get a little confused, and I'd like your opinion about this, why most of the research on paranormal parapsychology is not actually about God. It's about, which I personally think could be still a material answer that does non-local consciousness that continues indefinitely outside of a body in a substance that we have not yet been able to identify that's downloaded by our brains while we're here and future bodies down the line when we're in other lives that's not religion and i guess why do you think they conflate those so much the, the new atheist version is the simple but wrong answer very easy to to look better than the other marginal marginalized group that you're attacking. And if this sounds like some other politics you may have heard of, yeah, it sounds like that to me too. Uh, attacking marginalized groups in order to make yourself sound superior. Yep, oldest civilization. I mean, you compared to Trump, that kind of says it all. There's some way that a lot of people idealize atheism or skepticism because we're so afraid of lying to ourselves. And I think people who take a negative approach or the sadder approach, sometimes people will put them on a pedestal because they're the ones that are able to face reality. One thing I have noticed with a lot of them is a lot were raised in fundamentalist religions. So they already think fundamentalists Lee, if that's a word. And again, I'm not knocking religion at all. I'm just knocking a certain interpretation of it. And they have a lot of trauma based on religion. And a lot of them seem to bring that to this type of research where they just have such an aversion. Yeah, that's actually something that uh, I mentioned in my book. The, a lot of skeptics do come from highly religious backgrounds where they were dealing with fundamentalist parents. 
and they needed a break from this uh, obviously irrational religion that they that they grew up with. So from their viewpoint, religion was for them irrational and damaging in their personal lives. That's how that was for them. Their mistake is in assuming that it's that way for everybody. So you get this position, and, and also I think that that these particular personality types were already prone to fundamentalism, as as you said. Uh, so when they moved on into science, they latched on to it in a way where they really couldn't understand the enormous amount of ambiguity that's always present in science, because science never actually claims anything. They just you just build up evidence and develop theories that might be wrong next month when somebody else comes up with new evidence. So science is always ambiguous and they have a really difficult time with that. So, you know, it's like evolution is a certain thing. Well, no, it's not. And, and then, you know, the big bang is a certain thing. Well, maybe evidence might prove otherwise. And you have all these scientific concepts that they take as the, the word of the, the word of the rational mind. But really, they're, you know, they're theories. Theories can change. They struggle with that because of their fundamentalism. Which is too bad because to me it's kind of exciting to think, okay, well, all the evidence points towards evolution and the Big Bang, and it's the best explanation so far. But how exciting is it to think about we might get evidence down the line and learn things we could never have fathomed? And I'd, I find that thrilling. I do too. And in fact, they have the field of epigenetics where you have basically how people are thinking, how, how their minds are acting affects how their, how their genetics assembles itself. So it doesn't create anything new, but it, it reassembles things so that you can actually pass down some of the emotional content of your life down, to some, down through your genetics, which I think is fascinating. What do you think is some of the strongest evidence in favor of psi and afterlife and psychic abilities being true? There are several studies. So, so basically, it's there, there's a whole series of things, and it depends upon what you would take to be the best evidence. For example, if you want sheer quantity of good evidence, that's the Gansfeld experiment. If you go to the, to the psi encyclopedia put out by the Society for Psychical Research in England, their science encyclopedia has a has a an article on the Gansfeld, and if you scroll down to the bottom and you look at their references, you'll keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. The number of studies that have been done for the Gansfeld are enormous. They they have like something like over six thousand trials by fifty different researchers in several countries, and when you have that many eyeballs on one single type of experiment it's very, very unlikely that it has any serious flaws to it at that point. You just, when you've had enough people look at it, all the, all the things about it that might be fundamentally wrong are long since weeded out, simply because you've had so many eyeballs on it, including skeptics. It's a very basic experiment. You only have to shut out uh, the ability of somebody to see and hear. Really, that's it. This is the noise in the system is, can, can the people hear or see each other or communicate in any way? No? Okay, well, that, that's your control, right? And then on the sender end, they have four pictures to choose from. And on the receiver end, you're just kind of sitting back on a couch and you can't really see anything distinctly. You can't hear anything or feel anything distinctly. You're just sort of in a relaxed state, which is why they call it the Gansfeld. It means total field in German. And you're trying to just pick up whatever images the sender is sending. 
And since it's four pictures that they're working with, now you know that they can pick the correct one by chance, and that would be 25%. So if you beat that, 25%, then the experiment is a success. And the Gunsfeld typically has 33 to 34% success rate. So uh, it's very consistent. And that is probably the best evidence. 34% they get beyond 50%, 34% of the time. 25% is pure chance because there's four pictures. And so uh, if you get 33, 34%, you're, you're beating chance. And if you do that enough times, then you're very confident that you're beating chance and it's not just some random statistical error. Do you believe afterlife and psychic abilities are real? So I have some psychic ability myself, always have since I was a little kid. So the, the fact of psychic ability, my view of it, even before I started looking into this was, this is probably true. So the question for me wasn't, wasn't really whether psychic ability was true. It was, has science proved it? So I was coming from the position that it was probably true, but I remained to be convinced whether the science had in fact discovered it. Based upon just tons of freaking studies, we're talking, you know, they have, they've had studies in precognition. They've had studies in telekinesis, which they call psychokinesis, then psychometry and all kinds of other stuff. Then you add in all the investigations, thousands and thousands of studies in all these different areas and all, all this different stuff. And they've been coming up with positive results on a regular basis in like all these areas and tons of researchers over time. The clinical lab part of parapsychology stretches back to the early 1950s. There are a ton of research out there. And you add that to the fact that something like 50% of the population of the world has had a psychic experience, which means that this is a phenomenon you would expect to find, right? If you have that many people all over the place, all over the world, all throughout time, having psychic experiences, then from a scientific standpoint, you expect to find this. This would make this something ordinary, not something weird and, and amazing. So based upon all that, just the sheer mountain of data and the fact that it, you would expect to find it in the first place, yes. I am completely and utterly convinced that psychic ability is, is real and that science has indeed demonstrated it beyond any... Uh, it would be insane not to believe it based upon all the evidence. And afterlife too? Do you think survival of consciousness has been proven? I think we have enough evidence for any rational person. My favorite phrase for that is, it meets any sane standard of evidence. Just the sheer number of case studies... It should should be convincing to any rational person, just a sheer number. And you can and the researchers have been diligent of putting putting the best ones up on the science encyclopedia. So if you search for reincarnation uh, cases, there you'll find a ton of them. Not just like a few famous ones, like the Leninger, which was the little kid that was a, a fighter pilot in World War II in the Pacific. Right, the one studied by Dr. Jim Tucker. Mm -hmm. What do you find most fascinating about the research in general? For me, what I find most fascinating would have to be the getting into the theory behind it. Because after you've been in this for long enough, although some of this stuff is truly mind-boggling, it all sort of fits into a pattern. So the, the only theory you can work with is that consciousness is fundamental to the universe. And if consciousness is fundamental to the universe, then that means that the physical world is a product of consciousness. So when we look around us and we find all of our, you know, the things that we can touch and feel and smell and whatnot and all interact with, 
the philosophy behind that would have to be idealism, which means that the universe is made of ideas, versus materialism, which means that you believe that the world is made of material. So idealism, that the universe is made of ideas, is really the only sensible thing. And once you adopt that and you look at the parapsychological studies, everything starts to fall into line. There's there's some weird, weird, weird stuff out there. The the latest one that I ran into, so to give you an idea on how the studies have to be done, there's a, a remote viewing researcher named Courtney Brown that I was uh, just talking to a couple of days ago, one of the parapsychological association meetings. And he was describing an experiment where, so they're going to they're gonna remote view something, right, in the future. His remote viewer is going to remote view this thing in the future. So they start in January and they remote view something that's going to happen in February. So the researcher puts out a, a code for it. You know, they'll just like a string of numbers, something to indicate this event, right? They are remote viewing an event in February. Now, after whatever that event has, has passed, somebody in March picks the picks through the stuff that happened in February and selects the target. So the people in January that remote viewed the top object in February wasn't the the whatever happened in February wasn't picked until March, based upon the events that happened in February. So there was an event that occurred and they were told to remote view into the future and see what would happen in right. February. And then in March, they went and looked back and selected or right. Would... So, so picture this, you're a remote viewer, your leader has given you, um, your, your boss leader, whatever we want to call him, has given you a string of numbers and says, remote view this. And so you do your job and you remote view this and say, well, okay, this is a build, there's a building here and some stuff happened around it. And I see some people doing this and doing that. And here's what I see. That event isn't picked until March. Even though it happened in February, they wait until March and then they say, okay, what happened in February? And then, okay, we have these things. We'll pick this one. So the people have remote viewed an event in February, but they didn't pick which one they remote viewed until March. You know, they just kind of set all the results aside and then picked it in March and then saw what these people remote viewed after all of this had been selected. Oh, and then they picked it, and it was accurate. They picked the one that the people had happened to remote view. Yes, that he had to do that. And it makes perfect sense, because by picking the event after it has happened, you eliminate the problem of branching timelines that people might might be picking. So if an event hasn't happened yet, it might not be secure in the timeline. But by waiting until it happened to choose it, then it's secure in the timeline, and then people can people get the right one. And they couldn't have known normally what happened. They just, because they picked it just from numbers. So they couldn't have known this is what these numbers reference. Correct. Yeah. If you want to see some of that in action, he runs a website called Farsight. The researcher is Courtney Brown. He runs a a website called uh, Farsight. Most of his videos are behind a paywall. That's basically how he pays the people to do the remote viewing. Uh, but he has some older ones that you can look at on his YouTube site. It's, it's called Farsight. And you can actually see the remote viewers. You know, it's like, okay, I'm looking. They'll, they'll start the video by saying, okay, I'm looking at Case. And they'll give a string of numbers. And then they'll start telling you what they see. And because they're doing it all the time, they're very, very good at it. And the numbers stand for an event. They're either coordinates to a place or they represent 
this event will happen versus this. So people aren't reading the exact event. So they don't necessarily know what it is. Yeah. So for example, for example, one of them was Jack the Ripper. And then they picked a particular date for him so that their remote viewers would. And then he had three different people remote view him and all three of them picked up on Jack the Ripper. It was really fascinating. It is. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Inspired by David Justice, who died after a nearly two-year battle with glioblastoma, Jet, Joyful Experience Team, was founded by his son, Oliver Justice, and his best friends, River Attard, Leo Gerstein, Jack Gorenstein, and Felix Ward. Jet seeks to create joyful experiences for families struggling with brain cancer, a chance to enhance their lives with experiences that are rich in love and will be treasured for all time. We believe, like David did, that life should not be measured in time but in joyful moments. Jet will allow families coping with this painful diagnosis to go to special events and be treated like VIPs. Go to makingheadway.org forward slash Jet for a complete list of programs and activities. I'm curious about you. How did you get into parapsychology in the first place? Uh, actually, the skeptics drove me to it. <laughs> I started in about 2008. I, 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 I'm a writer. So I got into blogs when they first started being a thing. And I would jump on these uh, websites that were hosting a bunch of blogs so that you would get a bunch of readers really quickly. And so I started blogging about psychic stuff. And man, did the skeptics come out of the woodwork to come tell me what they thought. They were super opinionated, and they uh, they challenged me to take Randy's million-dollar challenge for psychics, and they told me it was all nonsense and whatnot. So I went and did some research, checked up on this stuff. You know, it took me about an hour to figure out that Randy's million-dollar challenge for psychics was basically a publicity stunt. The research, there's no research. It's all a bunch of pseudoscientists. It took me a little bit of time to realize, nope. Nope, that's not pseudoscience. This is all pretty much just science. This is, and it, this hasn't been disproven. And then I would look at the, what, you know, the, the skeptic arguments and the scientist arguments and put them up next to one another. And it's like, hmm, the scientists make sense. The skeptics, not so much. Uh, and you can see that after a while that the, the skeptics are generally over the top. They tend to make blanket statements about things and to characterize research in ways that, it's obvious that there's some bias going on. I mean, whether we're talking about scientific papers or whether we're talking about your random internet weirdo, 
It's all the same with the skeptics. All their language is bombastic. They, uh, they're always trying to push a point of view in it, and you can, you can just see that. And one of the things in the in scientific papers is they're very obtuse versus the researchers who have very, very clear papers. You read, uh, for example, Dean Radin or Rupert Sheldrake, and you, you can see exactly what they're talking about in their scientific papers. Everything's very clear. And then you see the skeptic arguments, and they're like super obtuse, using big words to mean simple things, and just generally making it sound complicated. And when you see skeptics refer to these papers, you realize that the skeptics haven't read the skeptical papers. They, they have no idea what was actually said in there. In fact, sometimes I have to read the, the researcher rebuttal to find out what the skeptic said, because the researchers are taking the time to go through these arguments and actually dissect them, because sometimes they're just, they've overcomplicated it. So I was seeing all these things, and then the deeper I got into it, it was like, wow. You know, this stuff's fascinating. This stuff's really fascinating. Oh, I'm hooked. <laughs> and that was basically it. And I, I stayed in it. And uh, once, once I had published the book on TED, Wikipedia, and the Battle for the Internet, then the parapsychological community, the scientists and whatnot, started talking to me and invited me to, to join the Parapsychological Association based upon my work there. Because up until that point, nobody had really called out the skeptics. There have been some books saying, well, the skeptics are wrong, but there hadn't been any book that actually called out the subculture of skepticism and say, you know, there's something seriously wrong here. It's the people themselves. There's, there's something wrong here. They're acting like fundamentalists, but this isn't really science. They're pushing a belief system. And that was a change from how skepticism had been viewed in the past. And you know, since then, I've been cited quite a bit in academic papers and stuff and used in uh, classes so that students know what they're getting into. When, once I got into that, then, then I got more access to uh, researchers and, and what they've been doing. And sometimes it just boggles my mind. I am, it's just a super joyful experience to be involved in this. I consider it some of the most profound, mind-blowing. What's the biggest story that you've covered or your biggest story? My biggest story was, this was last year, I had been at one of these smaller parapsychologists association get-togethers that they hold once a month, and I ran into a guy, his name was uh, Russell Gruber, and I mentioned that, you know, I was a parapsychology journalist, I wrote about studies and stuff, and he said, well, can you write about mine? And I said, well, what is it? And he says, well, I got a bunch of studies that I was doing for 10 years. Uh, okay, where are the papers? Well, there are no papers. I got these uh, master theses from my students, but we never published. So the parapsychological community hasn't heard of me. I'm like, what? Huh? That was just a, a really, what WTF moment there <laughs> with him. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. So I, uh, I sat down as soon as I had time and went through 15 master theses papers. Now, the thing you have to understand is that master theses is not that much different from being peer-reviewed by a journal, that you have a lot of people looking at these studies and going over them. He was working with, I think it was the University of Illinois or something. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, they would have statistics professors look at the statistics and, and all this kind of thing. So he had a lot of eyeballs on these papers and they, uh, they were, the studies themselves were actually pretty straightforward and the math wasn't all that difficult. So as, as long as he kept the controls, which he did, they were, they're pretty good studies. 
So there were 15 of them, and he was dealing with basic aspects of target selection and telepathy and doing different things with it. One of the more fascinating parts about this, and I wrote about this, I called this the Mirror Worlds Research. You can, you can find it at Paranormal Daily News, the Mirror Worlds Research. And the reason it's called Mirror Worlds is because he was using a general population, something you don't normally do in parapsychology studies. If you're going to prove that psychic ability exists, you want people who can actually do it. What he did was he used general populations, and then you could see this scale of belief. You can actually put this on a graph. So picture this graph where you've got the, the side on the left, right, your columns go high, and the side on the right, your columns go high, and there's nothing in the middle, right? This gives a really weird graph. And what this is, is it's demonstrating belief that the people who believed that psychic ability was real did really well for the graph on the left. And the people who thought it was all bullshit had the opposite graph on the right. So these are literally two different realities. The people who believed in it did well. The people who didn't believe in it did poorly. So if he switched this up, here's where it gets really interesting. And he says, okay, now what I want you to do is miss the target. Okay? Intentionally miss the target. Now, the columns were exactly reversed. So the skeptics hit the target, and the believers missed it. That's crazy. I guess that's what they call the sheep-goat effect. How belief affects outcomes in psychology. Well, this is demonstrating something really fundamental about reality. And that is how strongly our belief systems affect it that uh, whatever we believe, we're actually going to experience in our reality, which is what you would expect if your reality was made out of ideas. The beliefs of these people were literally giving them a reality that reinforced their beliefs. The idea of a completely objective reality doesn't play out. You can't prove a re an objective reality. So what we're dealing with is we're all, we're all kind of in this little bubble of a reality that we can see and experience. And it's going to be a little bit different from everybody else's. And it's going to be based upon our beliefs. And this seems to apply to life in general, not only research, if you really step back and think about it. That would be my conclusion as well. Yeah, that this is, this is telling us something interesting about our lives and about reality in general, that we're all dealing with a little bubble of belief. And the fewer that we have, the more objective our reality will appear. I'm going to go back up a little and ask you, you mentioned that you always thought this was real because you had some of your own psychic abilities when you were growing up or throughout your life. Would you mind sharing one of the most mind-blowing ones? The most mind-blowing one that I had was back in 2010. So at the time, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on in the Gulf of Mexico with this huge oil spill. And somebody asked me to psychically take a look at it. And I saw these huge, this huge plume of flame, terrified people running everywhere, and this general panic and fear. It was so strong that I actually, I was actually sh shaken up by it emotionally for a few days. This is the, that was how strongly I experienced it. Now, obviously, in the Gulf, there were no huge plume of flames. That never happened out there. But a few miles north of my home, a gas line blew and sent a huge plume of flame into the air. 
And it was like about a month later. And it's like, that was it. And the people that I related, you know, what I, what I'd seen in this, they're like, yep, that was it. They, it. It matched almost exactly what I, what I had described. So, you know, I was distracted by this other event and I ascribed this to it, but clearly I was seeing something much closer to home. And, uh, it's, it was an explosion, uh, a gas line explosion, a, a two foot wide gas line, a really huge thing exploded in San Bruno, California in 2010, sent a huge mushroom cloud of flame into the air, burned like 50 houses, killed several people, that kind of thing. And that was, that was what I had foreseen. When you were doing like a meditation, trying to view this one area in Mexico and this vision came to you and it was a month before it actually happened and it was near you. That's correct. Yeah. And that makes one just question time and what's avoidable, what isn't. Yeah. I'm going to ask you something because this is interesting and I think people get terms confused a bit. What would you say is the difference between parapsychology and the paranormal? Because I think people mix them up a lot. Uh, that's correct. People mix these up a lot. Parapsychology is the science of psychic ability and paranormal is everything else. The, the science is a very, very specific thing because we're talking about people with PhDs who have joined organizations. They're publishing scientific papers that are published in scientific journals. Their meetings are generally very exclusive and not available to the, to the general public. And Quite frankly, the public would be bored to tears anyway. Like all science, the subjects are very specialized. So when you hear them talk and they're, they're, they're getting into you know, nitty-gritty details and stuff, that's not what the public sees. What I do is I take this nitty-gritty stuff and I turn it into something the public can see. But you know, by the time I'm done with it, I'm telling you about science, but what I'm, I'm just narrating uh, and simplifying it, it's not the actual science. So science is about building on knowledge. So when you're a scientist, you're doing your part to increase this body of knowledge. You know, in the, in the world of the paranormal, you know, everybody's running around ghost hunting and all this sort of stuff, but they don't pull all this information together and examine it as, as a database. And in science, they absolutely do. When scientists do investigations, it becomes part of a larger database. All of this when they publish papers, they write about it, they talk about it with other scientists, and the information that they gathered can be seen by scientists in the future. So, for example, we have everything from the Society for Psychical Research up to the 1950s about all these investigations of psychics and poltergeists and stuff. And then from the 1950s, we have Ryan and many other researchers contributing to the database of lab research in parapsychology all the way up to the present. And we continue to have scientists add to the database. And then we have got other people who make their career out of analyzing everything that other people have done. And with all this information documented and there for generations, that's, that's what science is. That's how parapsychology operates as, as science, doing things in a very particular way and uh, having information that future generations can see. And so have there been any testing on the psychic abilities of animals? I know I'm a big animal person. Sounds like you are too. You can check out the website of Rupert Sheldrake. He is pretty much the premier researcher on animal telepathy and, and animal, animal psychic ability in general. 
there are studies out there that were not by him, but they're kind of scattered. And he's he's done most of them. That's what he's known for, is studies on animals. So the the one that absolutely made the headlines in England was a dog that knew that its owner was coming home. They ran a study where the owner would come home at completely random times and they would see whether the dog would run to the window. The correlation between when the dog ran to the window and when the owner was coming home to see if the dog could respond to all these random times. And the dog could. The dog generally knew from the moment the owner decided to come home that the owner was coming home and the dog would go to the window and wait for her. And so, you know, they got all this on tape and uh, documented and whatnot. And, you know, this was a significant bit of research there. Then he also did a parrot telepathy, where they had a parrot that had a certain vocabulary. And then the owner would think of some words from the vocabulary. And then they would check to see whether the parrots would say those words more often. So they were able to discern that, yes, the parrot was picking up words from its owner's mind beyond chance levels. And that was interesting. That is interesting. I mean, we could study all this. We could say we know what it's like to be an animal, but there's probably so much more going on in the complexity of animal consciousness that we could even begin to understand. It's, it's a really interesting field. He has a theory out there called morphic resonance that entire species will have a collective consciousness within their species and learn from it. And this is part of how these species stay together is they'll have this collective consciousness and they'll share certain thoughts within it. That's a whole different discussion, which we do not have time for. But morphic resonance is a theory, of course, like all the rest of parapsychology, insanely controversial. Is there any stories that you're working on now that you're especially excited about? I don't have anything on my plate right at the moment that is is like fascinating, mind-boggling, all this kind of thing. I just got done writing a couple of articles about the nature of reality. I was trying to explain an idealist, an idealism reality in as simple terms as possible. It, it turns out that's very difficult even si- to do that in a simple way because it's, it's very hard to get people past to, to understand that when you look at an object, you imbue meaning in it. We do this so unconsciously that it's very hard for somebody to step back and say, oh yeah, this has meaning to it when I see something. Uh, and the fact that everything that we do has meaning, that in itself demonstrates that consciousness is embedded in our experience of the physical. And we, we don't really have an experience of the physical without a mental aspect to it, which means that our, our reality is effectively mental. What is the theory behind psychic abilities? How do people think this works? You cannot understand psychic ability without understanding that, you know, we have been, de- we've been describing some of this during this hour, but the, um, there are two basic theories of reality. One is materialism, that the universe is made out. That means you believe that the universe is made out of material. And there's idealism, which means that you believe that the universe is made out of ideas. If you believe that the universe is material, then psychic ability makes no sense. But if you believe in idealism, that the universe is made out of ideas, then, then you have the background necessary to understand psychic ability. So you have to think of things everything as having a conscious element to it. You know, for example, that objects themselves will be imprinted with information from us. So this is where a haunted house would come from. That something happened in the house where there were really strong emotions, maybe over a period of time, that information got imprinted into the building and some people can can feel it and sense it 
and get imagery from it. And that would be a haunted house. When you describe it that way, it all makes perfect sense, right? It's like information is imprinted in the object. What one researcher found, who is, his name is Bill Bankston, he's, uh, he's heavily involved in research into psychic healing, is that healing energy would be embedded into objects. He would do a healing experiment in one spot, and then take everything away, and that area would still have healing energy, whether he intended it to or not. So it's stuck with that space. Again, it all makes perfect sense if the universe is uh, made of ideas. Because, of course, objects are going to get this information. But it doesn't make any sense if the universe is material. Because objects have no meaning and they can't take thought. So you have to think of thoughts as being something primary. That this, this is what's driving everything. It's what's, what's in the minds. And it's not just an individual's mind. But we know from particle physics that entanglement exists. And the only way for entanglement to exist is if... There is no separation. So you have to take away time and space. So time and space can't be fundamental to reality. This gets really hard to imagine. But if time and space can't be fundamental to reality, if entanglement exists. So since entanglement exists, then we're not really separated. What does this mean for consciousness? It means that we're not separated consciously from each other. So when you look at a physical reality, this is a shared conscious experience. Because we're part of a much larger conscious entity, we can't make a particular piece of it go away. So if we have like a board that we're holding up, we can't make that board go away with our thoughts because that board is shared in the entire consciousness. I, this obviously couldn't actually be done literally, but if you were to take all the people in the world or the majority of them, billions of people, and have them mentally manifest an object, do you think the object could appear? Yes, it could appear. Yes, it, whatever whatever billions of people can all decide on is going to happen if you could actually get them to all decide on it. Any any hesita any individual hesitation or subconscious subconscious denial, whatever, completely washed out when you're dealing with that many people. If you could get everybody to to manifest something, you're absolutely looking at it. So to make something actually appear out of thin air, this is called deportment, and this is this has been documented. Apportment is, is absolutely a thing. Researchers have had cameras out where they're watching something actually appear out of thin air. It does happen. It's, it's, they're usually very small objects, and these, things, these incidents are very rare, but it's absolutely part of the research. So could billions of people suddenly decide to make something appear? Yeah. What? Whatever they want. You want dragons? You can make them appear. That many people all agreeing would definitely make something happen. I feel like realistically, there could be an experiment done on that to make a small particle or an electron appear. You just would have to get enough people involved. You'd have to get mainstream scientists to be willing to do it. But I mean, I don't know. So I could be wrong, but I could imagine. Or a particle like this, a, mini, a quantum particle. You'd want something larger. But yeah, possibly. You need people capable of some really, really strong focus and... Uh, a lot of the issue with uh, doing an experiment like that is that we all have very strong subconscious attachment to the physical reality that we have, and we don't want to break it. Think of it, think of this physical reality as a scaffolding that we have over the fundamental reality. And if, if we decide to break this reality, we're literally breaking ourselves out of our own physical reality. 
uh, and we have a strong incentive not to do that. That would ruin, I guess, our whole experience here. In one sense, why would we want to just destroy whether they call it our reason for being here or purpose? Or, I mean, I could see why that might be embedded in our consciousness to not do that. You can kind of see this in experiments with psychedelics or simply when, when they put people in tanks where you can't really hear or see anything. What happens? The mind just goes berserk, completely hallucinates. You just start making up stuff in your head, creating whatever whatever comes through because you have no input from the physical body. And that's basically what you're looking at, just chaos. I know you mentioned Dr. Bill Bankston. In terms of healing, I believe you've mentioned that prayer has been researched to help in healing at times. What What are your thoughts on that? And in what sense has it been researched? You know, prayer is obviously an area where people are very interested to see if there's actually something to it. So they've done some medical studies where they try to see if prayer has helped in healing. So somebody somebody will be done with an operation. They'll try to see how quickly they recover from it versus a control group. So we're not talking about people trying to completely heal some medical condition for somebody, but rather aid in the recovery of it because that's a little bit easier to study. And what they find is they've had mixed results. You know, some studies show a connection, some studies don't. And it's been a really, really tough thing to nail down. One of the issues that they have, I mean, there's several problems. Anytime you do a medical study, you never know what the people do when they walk away from the room. So you could have people that are heavily involved in their own recovery, but you don't see it because they're only checking in once a week. And you, have, you could have people that are absolutely destroying their recovery. You don't know what these people are doing beyond what you can study. And this makes this kind of study kind of difficult. And where I'm going with this is that, so I, I, you know, you can't say from the scientific perspective, yes, prayer works or yes, it doesn't. You can say, well, it's a little bit inconclusive. And this in no way means that, that prayer doesn't work. It just means that from a scientific standpoint, it's very hard to find a study, to, to set up a study in such a way to conclusively demonstrate it. And when you say prayer, not necessarily religious prayer, although that could be, but sending visualizations would be part of that, visualizing someone healing, sending healing energy, all types of what could be under the umbrella of prayer? Usually they tend to, the, the researchers tend to divide out the two. So prayer is generally a religious thing. And the people that are interested in prayer are usually coming from a religious point of view. Now, this might be uh, what type of religious view. I, I don't know. You know, some that depends on the individual. Obviously, there's a joke that, you know, there's uh, what, eight billion different religions. But, the, you know, that, that's kind of how that that plays out is they're, they're they're choosing people that from a religious point of view do prayer. Why do you think psychic? abilities are just so controversial. You know, they don't, instead of curiosity or, um, and people get so angry. Why do you think that is? It's a, it's a certain type of person, personality that gets angry. And it's interesting to look at the history of the science of psychic ability, because this goes back to the beginning of the Society for Psychical Research in 1882. Practically from the moment they opened their doors, there were people, other scientists, absolutely positively convinced this was all nonsense. And they, uh, they made sure to tell everybody about it. And they would, they would be trying to disprove all of the, um, dis disprove basically everything, you know, 
not, not give them credit for, for doing anything. So the reason for this in academia, I think, is that academia, you see the same thing as like with Wikipedia. There's lots of rules. You get rewarded for power and you're defending your space. And so you're, you're finding you have the proper environment for authoritarians to survive. Uh, when you have this like really structured area where where you get rewarded for being on top of the heap, that you're going to you're going to find a lot of authoritarians in there, and authoritarians, they hate this stuff. So that's my theory that that really this is just authority, this is just a personality type that can't stand this sort of thing. I find authoritarians one of the things that I have the hardest time with about them. They lack wit and they lack curiosity. They seem to have some innate threat about curiosity. And sometimes authoritarian cultures and decent people, non-authoritarian people trying to thrive and survive to do what they love in an authoritarian culture. Yeah, you see a lot of that when people are dealing with authoritarian situations, whether it's within a family or whether it's within the professional organization. You know, bosses, there seem to be a lot of bosses out there with authoritarian tendencies. It isn't, you know, it isn't about getting things done in the in the best possible manner. It's about their power and control. and one of the problems of psychic ability is it absolutely bypasses all of that. That makes it very threatening to that sort of personality. How do you think things are going to be going in the future in terms of this research? Do you think it's going to ever be just considered mainstream science? And if so, what do you think it will take to become part of just mainstream accepted science? That's a good question. So just to, to give you some background, uh, in the last... 15 years, things have changed quite a bit already. Uh, the internet has has taken away the gatekeepers that were holding this back for a very, very long time. So now, if you get on the internet, you have access to research. If you just do a little digging, you, you, you'll find more and more and more as you go. And so you've got a larger and larger group of people that understand that there's a difference between what is said in the mainstream versus what what is actually real and they, they quite a few people know that there's a there's a difference there and it's particularly glaring for something like parapsychology the difference between how it's treated by by a lot of the mainstream academia and how it actually is is so the difference between the two is so large that in, in an open information environment, it's getting really hard to, to be the skeptic and to say that none of this is real. Skepticism of that sort has been declining in recent years because it's, it's indefensible. Anybody who does a little bit of research and just like, mm, what's up with these guys? And why are they so down on chiropractic care? That, that's another story. I love my chiropractor. I'm a big fan of it, I'll personally say. And skeptic organizations absolutely are convinced they're all frauds. That's part of the belief system. If anything holistic, they, they're generally against. So in the future, this, this trend can only go in the same direction. You know, uh, more and more people become familiar with the research. And you have a situation where the skepticism can't come back to the level it was because the information about what it is is spreading. And once, once it spreads out, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. It's a very slow process because it's involving major fundamental shifts in our understanding of reality, but it is happening. And it's, it's moving by inches, which is typical for science, but it is moving. So I would say 
probably by 2040 or something, it's going to be a lot more acceptable. When I say slowly, I mean slowly. <laughs> this is science. People have to literally die. The, the new ones have to take over for this to change. Approximately 185,000 murder cases went unsolved from 1980 to 2019. On average, 66% of homicides are solved each year. So what about the other 34%? Alarmingly, the number of murder cases that went unsolved by police hit a new high in 2020, resulting in only 50% of cases being solved, leaving far too many families with no answers, no resolution, no closure. That's why we investigate and report on unsolved cases, to spread the word in hopes of helping families who are searching for answers. We don't sleep, we're just actively looking for her. These girls were alive. They were living, breathing people. They weren't a picture in the media. There was a, a body found in a truck recently. None of us know anything about that body. Who, who was it? What happened? What could have happened? Who could have been involved? There's no answer. And, and it's just horrible. A true crime series investigating mysterious unsolved cases. Real people, real stories, real crimes. Tune into Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. Available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We are at Speaking of Crime on Instagram and Facebook, and at Crime Speaking on Twitter. everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. 
So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. So this week, Ella T. asked, is it true that we actually pick our parents? And if so, why do some people pick not so nice or abusive parents? Okay. This is a two-part question, and it's pretty complicated. So for the first part, I can't answer that for sure. I know Dr. Jim Tucker, who I've talked about, who studies cases of kids with past life memories, has looked a little bit into between lives, and there are a few children who said they picked their parents. I don't remember the exact details. A few have mentioned how they have picked their parents. And what's really interesting is they've also given evidential details, such as this trip their parents were on, I believe in Hawaii. And they gave details of that, that the kid could not have known. And this was the week and vacation where the kid was conceived. Uh, No, they did not give details that none of us would want to see related to our parents. But They did give evidential details about Hawaii and where their parents were and said they chose their parents. Now, why would someone pick abusive parents? I can't begin to answer that with any validity. I know mediums who also have said that we choose our parents said that often it's we come here to learn life lessons, maybe teach our parents if they're abusive maybe they came here to overcome that and they failed I mean I really can't give any answer to that that I would consider valid or worthy that's just the information I've heard and I mean who knows I just If you've had abusive parents, anyone, that's just really shitty. And I can't say there's a good reason. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. This has all just been an amazing conversation and it's been wonderful to get to talk to you. I've wanted to talk to you for so long since I found your book. So where can all our listeners find you? I know I mentioned some in the beginning, but let us know where we can all find you. Uh, The easiest spot is Paranormal Daily News. I do put out uh, articles there occasionally. I'll have one coming out soon uh, where I take a general building contractor's view of looking at haunting situations. And that's just because there are a whole bunch of really ordinary factors involved. I'm not going to say that that paranormal stuff doesn't exist. I'm just going to say, you know those uh, tricky lights that are flashing in and out? Well, I fix those normally. (laughs) That's part of my job.
And there are other things that people might not be aware of. And, you know, if you can, you have to rule out ordinary causes before you move to the paranormal. So I'm just trying to lend a hand in that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's just been really fun. I, I, I appreciate it. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.